It's the Night Talker with Trey Elling. Coming up on episode number 81 of the Night Talker at 1045, where are we at in society? You've heard of Cocaine Bear. How about Cocaine Sharks? Except it's not an upcoming movie plot. It's real life off the coast of Florida. At 10.30, we're taking a look at what NFL coaches are saying during the first week of training camp, including Sean Payton sounding off on the league's gambling policy, Sean McVay feigning outrage over Vegas, predicting their mediocre roster will finish below 500, and Arthur Smith heading into the season looking a bit more pedo. At 10.15, a check-in on college football includes Pitt coach Pat Narduzzi lobbying for a salary cap. And coming up in seconds, we've got some good and bad news for the Dallas Cowboys. Herbert gets a massive deal and some great news for 49ers fans. I am your host, Trey Elling. Give me a follow on Twitter at Courtesy Wave and do the same for ESPN Austin at 1027 ESPN. Well, unfortunately for the Dallas Cowboys, they do have one holdout as their training camp gets going in Oxnard, California. Zach Martin officially did not report to camp yesterday. Now, this has been expected. The news leaked, I want to say, within the last couple of weeks that Zach would be holding out of training camp in an effort to gain a little bit of money, to put it simply. The guy agreed to a deal several years ago that has him set to make a little bit over $13 million this year, which seems like a good number, except when you consider that Martin is one of the best guards in the National Football League, and the going rate for a guy at that position with that level of talent tends to be more in the $20 million per year range. Zach also just helped the Cowboys out earlier this offseason by restructuring his contract to give the Cowboys a little bit more salary cap wiggle room, and now he's wanting the favor to be returned. Doesn't seem like an unrealistic request for Zach. I just don't know if it's going to happen because they do have him under contract. Perhaps you can figure out a way to bump it up by at least a couple million dollars per year, but... Contract to contract in the ends, and I'm sure the Joneses are looking at things like that as well. But will they be willing to play this game of negotiation chicken and potentially be without their most important offensive linemen for even a small chunk of the 2023 season? be fascinating to sit and watch to see how this is resolved, if it is at all. But there is some good news, as I mentioned in my intro. Cowboys just signed one of their most important defensive players to an extension. That would be cornerback Trayvon Diggs. Cowboys agreed to terms with the Pro Bowl cornerback on a five-year extension for $97 million. It has the potential for a $104 million maximum value for the 24-year-old Alabama alum. Diggs is a two-time pro bowler. He was an all-pro a season. And he is now one of the highest-paid cornerbacks in the game. And just based on performance, even though it felt like there was a bit of a slip last year, these things aren't linear. He was still a very good cornerback. 
He is one of the highest paid corners of the game. I think it makes sense. At $97 million, Diggs' average annual value climbs into the range of guys like Green Bay's Jair Alexander, Cleveland's Denzel Ward, Jalen Ramsey for Miami. Ooh, that one's painful. Jalen Ramsey is not nearly at the top of his game anymore. Marlon Humphrey from Baltimore. And Marshawn Lattimore from the New Orleans Saints. As Cowboys fans will tell you, Diggs led the NFL in interceptions in 2021 with 11, which is an insane number. That was the most by any player in four decades. He was also an All-Pro that year, obviously. And this locks in a guy that really makes everything else in that secondary so much easier because you can rely on him on that island on the outside. Next biggest distinction for the Dallas Cowboys defense? Got to be Micah Parsons, right? But I don't think they can that get that done until this offseason, maybe. But stay tuned because there's no way Dallas will let him get anywhere near free agency if they have a say-so. Speaking of big deals, how about the contract extension that Justin Herbert just signed? Five-year, $262.5 million extension. It's going to keep Herbert in L.A. at least through the 2029 season and does make him the league's highest-paid quarterback with an average annual value of $52.5 million per year. Herbert, who is 25, becomes the third quarterback to score an enormous extension this offseason. Jalen Hurts got his big deal from the Eagles in April. Baltimore and Lamar Jackson figured out a way to make it work because he also got a massive new deal. And if you are paying attention to who might be next, well, look out for Joe Burrow in Cincinnati. Herbert was the Offensive Rookie of the Year in 2020. He was a Pro Bowler in 2021. Last year was a weird one for him because he did suffer a rib cartilage fracture early in the season. I only know this because I had him as my fantasy quarterback in both leagues, and it felt like he was about to be a an absolute stud in the fantasy landscape. And so last year was a bit off for him, but you expect him to get back to full form this year. If he can stay healthy, I mean, he still has great weapons around him. With Keenan Allen, one of the most savvy route runners in the league, the guy plays old man game at the wide receiver position. I feel like he's going to be playing until his mid-40s. They have Mike Williams also, of course, who has really come on these last few years. And they just added Quentin Johnson in the draft, the former TCU wideout, who obviously has a ton of big play potential. And I feel like people who are judging Quentin Johnson, watching him at the end of last year, Maybe don't remember that he was dealing with, I want to say it was an ankle or foot injury that was slowing him down. But when he's at the top of his game, he has the potential to be a number one wide receiver in this league. So they have weapons all around. Will Kellen Moore make a big difference as the offensive coordinator and quarterbacks coach? Or how much of the play calling is Brandon Staley still doing? Those are certainly things to monitor, but Justin Herbert has shown the ability to thrive even in Staley's offense. Boy, it's going to be tempting to pick him way too early in fantasy football this year too, but I'm going to have to show some patience, I think. How about Cole Komet getting paid by the Chicago Bears? Another offense that has a ton of intrigue. 
heading into 2023. Justin Fields is a true on dual threat. Picks up huge chunks of yardage with his legs and also is more than an adequate passer. And Cole Komet has been one of his most important targets over the last few years. The former Notre Dame standout tight end is proving to be one of the better tight ends in the NFL now too. And let's remember the Chicago Bears also went out and got DJ Moore from the Carolina Panthers. Talk about a dude who gets lost in the wash of some just really bad offenses Poor quarterback play, but really terrible coaching over the last few years with Matt Rule running that franchise into the ground. And now Cole Komet, maybe the second or third most important piece in that offense in terms of pass catchers, with Fields being the most important, obviously, is secure for a while now, too. Just reminded that the Bears also have Chase Claypool. So they they are uh they are rounding up into something very intriguing this upcoming season. And speaking of quarterbacks in fantasy football, Justin Fields, the secret is out on him. A lot of people are saying this is going to be this year's Jalen Hurts. Take this guy when you can. Don't take him too high necessarily, but also know the breakout potential is massive. Congrats to Brock Purdy, who is going to be a participant at 49ers training camp. Suffers that elbow injury, has off-season surgery, but man, the miracles of modern medicine has Brock Purdy ready to go and likely going to be the 49ers starting quarterback for game one of 2023. All right, coming up, we get into the college football side of things, including one FBS head coach suggesting a salary cap for his sport. It's the Night Talker with Trey Elling. It's the Night Talker with Trey Elling. You know, we like to take regular looks at not only the NFL, but also college football, considering we spent last segment and we'll be talking next segment about the NFL. That was a perfect time to look at what is happening in what I consider to be my favorite version of my favorite sport, that being college football. It has been quite the interesting offseason, and we are now starting to ramp up to the season itself with conference media days happening over the last couple of weeks. And the last of the major media days is taking place today and then also tomorrow in Indianapolis. That would be Big Ten media days, and I think I may try and provide you a roundup for what was said and done over the course of these two days tomorrow. That is because there is something that is a little bit more pressing for me that I feel is worth your time and brain space right now. And it has to do with the latest efforts to come up with some sort of federal legislation to get a handle on NIL. Now, these discussions surrounding NIL legislation have been going on for more than a year. And now, two of the guys who have been involved in said conversations for the duration of that time, Joe Manchin, the polarizing Democrat from West Virginia, and then Tommy Tuberville, who of course does have a history, not just in college sports, but specifically college football, released a bipartisan NIL bill yesterday afternoon. 
Some really interesting details in this bill that maybe separates it from efforts in the recent past. Now, this was unfortunately announced just days before the start of Congress's August recess, but it might be something that can be built on and then ultimately passed in the coming months. And this comes with the input of athletics directors, administrators, associations, collectives, and athlete groups. They all provided feedback going back nearly a year to October. Nick Saban, who is a close friend to not only Tuberville, but also Mansion 2 apparently, according to this On3 article, was consulted in the process as well. And NCAA President Charlie Baker, who people are saying glowing things about in his efforts to revive the reputation of the NCAA and taking over as its president for Mark Emmert, has also spent a ton of time in D.C. And you may point to the fact that he was the former governor of Massachusetts and is a politician at heart as a reason to maybe not trust the guy, but he also understands how to get things done in these sorts of settings too. So the culmination of these efforts is the bipartisan NIL bill that was announced yesterday that is called Protecting Athletes, Schools, and Sports Act of 2023, nicknamed the PASS Act, Protecting Athletes, Schools, and Sports, PASS. Makes me cringe, like thinking about the Patriot Act and some of the other creatively named bills from the past 20-plus years that oftentimes have the opposite intended effect of what that very simple name suggests. But, Tuberville and Mansion did roll it out yesterday. It's been described as a way to create, quote, common sense guidelines for the NIL system across the country. Now, here's maybe the most interesting aspect of it to me, and I think what ultimately ends up getting it derailed, too, is the legislation would not allow athletes to enter the transfer portal during their first three years of eligibility. They would have to conform to a uniform standard contract also, with the legislation also ensuring nothing in the bill would impact the employment status of a student-athlete. So essentially, they are saying these guys are required to sign contracts to stick at their university for three years and they can reap the benefits of NIL during that time. But even though they're signing these three-year contracts, we're still going to make sure they're not considered employees of the university. Because that's a problem, despite the fact that it's very clear to everybody who thinks about a guy signing a three-year contract with someone that ensures a scholarship, I'm guessing, a spot on the roster, and NIL opportunities, you're pretty much employee of that institution at that point. The bill would also give the NCAA authority to revoke school licenses, to participate in NIL, or send violations to the Federal Trade Commission or other federal agencies. The FTC could commence investigations that the NCAA violates the act, along with the power to revoke the governing body's tax-exempt status. Some of the other main points from this bill... It would force boosters and collectives to be affiliated with the school 
It would also prohibit NIL from being used as an inducement in recruiting in the transfer portal. Yeah, good luck with that one, guys. Seriously. What a waste of a point in this act to think that you're actually going to be able to monitor and control that. Just forcing even more of it under the table, unfortunately. And by the way, boosters and collectives must be officially affiliated with the school. I think more evidence that these student-athletes at the football level now, the sport that makes the most money far and away for college athletics and really does help to finance the rest of the athletics department, they will eventually be university employees. And you're going to need to drop this idea if this bill is going to get passed. Another point, provides coverage for sports-related injuries for uninsured athletes for eight years following graduation from a four-year university. Larger schools, like the Power 5 programs essentially, would be required to pay for expenses even after the athlete leaves the school. Collectives can promote their program, assist in recruiting, and assist in providing benefits to recruits, athletes, or parents of athletes, but only if the organization is formally associated with the school through an official contract. So wait a second. NIL can't be used to induce a recruit or a guy in a transfer portal from coming to your school, but the collectives can assist in recruiting and providing benefits to recruits, athletes, or parents of athletes? There's a lot of contradictory stuff that's beginning to show here in these bullet points for the PASS Act. Contracts will be required to be made public for any non-athlete parties involved in NIL. This would make it ideal for the FTC to launch investigations. Uniform contracts would be required in terms of those three-year deals, I'm guessing. NIL deals involving athletes or institutions would be prohibited in specific industries including drug paraphernalia. Well, what if cannabis is legal in the state that the athlete is in? Dangerous weapons and gambling. What do you define as dangerous weapon? Something beyond a handgun? Crossbow? A Bowie knife? We need some clarification on these things. And by the way, gambling you're still going to take the sanctimonious stance that it's okay for these colleges and universities to make major money on affiliations with gambling institutions, but not allow the athletes themselves to reap those benefits, even if it's something like DraftKings. That's not okay? Gotcha. Yeah, this bill is DOA. One more bullet point from on three on what was in this past act that was announced yesterday potential NIL legislation at the federal level. If enacted, athletes would be prohibited from entering the transfer portal in the first three years of eligibility with some exceptions. This is from Tommy Tuberville. Student athletes should be able to take advantage of NIL promotional activities without impacting their ability to play college sports. But we need to ensure the integrity of our higher education system, remain focused on education, and keep the playing field level. My legislation and Senator Manchin will set basic rules nationwide, protect our student-athletes, and keep NIL activities from ending college sports as we know it. College sports, as you think you know it, Tommy Tuberville, died a long time ago. Stop trying to control things to this degree. I understand putting safeguards in place, but there's hypocrisy all over this bill. And to continue to insist that these college football players are not employees of the university 
that they are representing and playing for every Saturday during the fall while having them sign three-year contracts and forcing them to stay at that place for all three years except under special circumstances is ludicrous. And this thing was destined to fail the second that people started reading through the details. Why do they waste our time like this? Seriously. By the way, good job, Pete Nakos. He is a friend of the show now, so I'm going to get him on at some point. I think he's at Big Ten Media Days over these next couple of days, but I think once we get to next week, because he has been at all of these different media days asking the same basic questions, he and I were asking similar questions, as a matter of fact. I'm going to get Pete on to talk about this and a whole lot more, too, just to see where he thinks all of this is headed. Quickly, before the commercial break, I did preview that pit coach Pat Narduzzi came out as wanting to put a lid on NIL deals for players, uh, essentially saying that he needs the playing field a little bit more level so that schools with huge alumni bases don't have a built-in advantage over smaller schools. And look, I'm a fan of salary caps in sports. And considering how much money is flying around college football, I think he's got a point. I know some people want to write him off or call him a communist. This isn't about some political ideology. This really is about ensuring some level of fairness with the strange financial circumstances that college football finds itself surrounded by now. It is still very much wild, wild west, and it's something like this that will help control things just a little bit better. All right, coming up, we get back into the NFL including what some coaches are having to say the first week of training camp. It's the Night Talker with Trey Elling. It's the Night Talker with Trey Elling. Boy, Sean Payton is the gift that keeps on giving, isn't he? So glad that Sean Payton is back as an official part of the National Football League's on the sidelines as the head football coach of the Denver Broncos. Broncos, we talked about this in segment one, about the teams that have really intriguing offenses this year. Chargers, Chicago Bears, and yeah, you have to consider the the Denver Broncos as one of those teams too. Even though Russell Wilson seems like he is on a serious decline The fact that he gets Sean Payton as his offensive play caller and quarterbacks coach to go along with the fact that there are some talented dudes on the outside for Russell Wilson to throw the football to. They're good at the tight end position. Looks like their stud young running back, Javante Williams, is going to be ready to go for the start of 2023 after he suffered a season ending, I believe it was a knee injury last year. So, look, we're in the season of optimism right now, but there may be something to that for Broncos fans. But Sean Payton is going to be down one player this season thanks to a defensive end getting suspended for a gambling violation. Iamoa Uwazurike. I'm sorry, I just butchered his name. I have no idea how to say it, and I'm just not even going to take the effort right now. But he's a defensive end who's going to be suspended for the entire 2023 season for gambling. There were no details provided on what the 25-year-old defensive end wagered on, but in other situations 
where guys are suspended for the entire season. It tends to have something to do with betting on NFL games. Well, with an interview for the USA Today yesterday, Sean Payton really sounded off on the NFL over the lack of clarity that players have been given with regard to gambling rules. I would argue with Sean Payton that these guys know they're not supposed to be betting in any way, shape, or form on NFL games. That is pretty clear, if nothing else. But here's what Payton had to say. When you have a bunch of players getting Ds, you have to start looking at the message. We've had a lot of Ds in our league this year with this policy. You could also argue that these guys are being made an example of by the NFL, who is working in cahoots with those who are trying to get gambling legalized everywhere in the U.S. Now, this Broncos player is the 10th since April to get suspended for a violation of the NFL's gambling policy. Peyton also told the USA Today that the information that was sent to teams during the spring was, quote, awful and eventually rewritten because it was so difficult to understand. Peyton told his own players, quote, you can't bet on football, period. Also criticized the NFL for the hypocrisy of teams now being in bed with sportsbook and gambling outlets. And this is an easy criticism, and I think it's one that is not only valid, but should continue to be brought up. It is complete BS that there is this double standard in play where the NFL is allowed to foster gambling behaviors and as a result, gambling addictions, but tell their guys that, no, I'm sorry, this needs to be beneath you. You are better than this. You guys want to throw a little bit of coin around on other sports or even an NFL game that isn't their own, or if it is their own, if they're saying, yeah, I'm betting on my team to win, that's how confident we are that I, we are that we're going to win this game. I have less of an issue with that too. But the NFL doesn't feel that way about things. More from Peyton. I know this, there's a handful of owners that are owning these problems. A player can't have a share of DraftKings or FanDuel. It's shameful, embarrassing. The NFL did acknowledge last month that the communication regarding its gambling policy had not been perfect. In an effort to clarify things, they did give players six key gambling rules to follow. You don't remember those. Don't bet on the NFL. That one's pretty simple. Don't gamble at your team facility while traveling for a road game or staying at a team hotel. See, this is where the rules start to get truly ridiculous. Team facility, okay, maybe, but even still, traveling for a road game or at the team hotel, that is complete BS, NFL. You are setting guys up for failure with that stupidity. Rule number three, don't have someone bet for you. How else are they going to place the bet? They can't do it themselves. Rule number four, don't share team inside information. Rule number five, don't enter a sports book during the NFL playing season. Really? You've got a franchise in Vegas, but a dude can't enter a sports book and place a bet on, I don't know, an NBA game if he wants to? And number six, don't play daily fantasy football either. A component of gambling that has allowed your league and your sport to grow in explosive ways. But your guys can't participate in those things. Speaking of Vegas sports books, the Los Angeles Rams are not projected to be very good by Vegas this year. 
Most sports books have the Rams at a six and a half win total. So I think they're going to go seven and 10. Well, you bet the over. You think they're going to go six and 11? You bet the under. Well, Sean McVay was asked about this yesterday. And I guess he's understandably upset. You want to defend your team. Quote, whatever I say, I'm going to get in trouble now. They don't believe in us. I think that's actually a very level-headed response to six and a half. But do you think deep down he realizes that that's probably where his team belongs right now? What level of trust do we have that Matthew Stafford is going to return to 2021 form? You think that's going to happen? There aren't any assurances of that. Matthew Stafford does help them out. Cooper Cup is still going to be Cooper Cup, but there are some serious issues on both sides of the ball because you leverage the future to try and win now, back in 2020 and 2021. And by the way, congratulations, it worked. You got that Super Bowl title in your home stadium too, by the way. It was a very cool moment for the lifelong fans of that franchise, as I say with a large eye roll. But here you are now with very little in the way of draft capital. You're kind of hamstrung with regards to the types of players that you can go out and sign because you've signed some of your most important players to huge deals. You still have Aaron Donald. That helps. You do still have some of those pieces that I mentioned on offense, but things are very much in flux right now. Like, I remember the conversation after the Rams won the Super Bowl where people were asking if Sean McVay is going to retire to go work in television for a few years and focus a little bit more on his family. And with that wife, I wouldn't have blamed him for that. But he chose to stick around. And as a result, is going to be dealing with some hardships. Last year, and I think this year too. Rams get to seven wins. You have to consider that a mildly successful season, unfortunately, if you're an L.A. fan. They're in a division that could be good. You know the, well, you don't know because you never know in the NFL, but it seems like the 49ers are going to be really good. The Cardinals, probably not. The Seattle Seahawks will be competitive, but I have no idea with them. Is Geno Smith going to play like he did last year? If so, then Seattle's maybe going to have a chance to make the playoffs. So the Rams are probably the third best team in their division right now. With the potential to be either second or fourth, I think, when it's all said and done. They did have 12 losses last season, which means only five wins that first year of the 17-game schedule. That is the most defeats from a reigning Super Bowl winner in NFL history. And it wasn't bound to happen necessarily, but as soon as Matthew Stafford got hurt, you knew that they were in serious trouble. I think they did make at least one positive move this offseason by getting rid of Jalen Ramsey who I mentioned in segment one as being one of the highest paid cornerbacks in the NFL. He's with the Miami Dolphins now. Good luck to the Dolphins with that, but there has been a noticeable decline in his coverage abilities, even going back to that Super Bowl championship season. So I think no longer having to deal with that distraction and faking like he is as good as he thinks he is, is going to help them on that side of the ball. Moving on now to the Atlanta Falcons and their head football coach. 
the guy who's responsible for properly managing the workload of Bijan Robinson, and I don't totally trust him to do so. That's because Arthur Smith showed that when he has a really talented running back, like with his last two years of the Tennessee Titans, when he was the guy calling plays for that offense, and it was a productive offense, mind you, but also one that saw Derrick Henry get run into the ground. And since those two years, he hasn't exactly been the same player. Well, now he has the chance to do something similar with Bijan Robinson or hopefully learn his lesson and do a better job of managing his touches and the types of touches, especially because Bijan is more of a dual threat than Derrick Henry. But Arthur Smith met with the press earlier today And much to the surprise of many who have covered him for a couple of years now, Arthur Smith was rocking a mustache. And he was asked about the mustache. His quote, It's a lifestyle change. It's not for everybody. Yeah, it's not for everybody, Arthur Smith. I'll tell you the people that it's for in most situations. It's for porn stars, It's for pedophiles. It's for guys who have thin upper lips. It's for guys who are trying to maybe raise money for men's health issues in November. It's for fat guys. Fat guys can get away with the mustache. And it's for flat out creeps. Which one are you? You're a bigger dude, so maybe you do qualify as a fat guy, but you're not Tom Selleck, my friend. You can't get away with the mustache. It's not helping your look. It's probably hurting your look, if anything. All right, one more segment coming up. You've heard of Cocaine Bear. How about Cocaine Sharks? Except it's not a movie script. It is an actual thing off the coast of Florida. It's the Night Talker with Trey Elling. The Night Talker with Trey Elling. Final segment of tonight's show means it's time for... Where are we at in society today? That's right, it is your regular look at stories that show we as a people are headed in the wrong direction. Very occasionally, I will bring you a story that provides a sense of optimism that has us all saying to ourselves, hey, maybe we as a people are beginning to get something right. Perhaps all is not lost. But sadly, tonight is not that night. And we start this week off the shores of America's most flaccid member. That's right, the state of Florida. We all know how messed up Florida is, despite the fact that it has become a place that people are moving to in droves over the last three years since COVID took grip on this country and world. Well, Florida is apparently dealing with a new problem that is even unique for Florida, as messed up of a state that is, but it's also very fitting that Florida is dealing with this issue. Have you seen the movie Cocaine Bear? I have not seen it yet. I have had friends tell me that I need to watch it, that it is hilarious, well worth my time, well worth that price of admission, and apparently the basis of... This film, I believe it was directed by and starring Elizabeth Banks, 
is that a bear accidentally gets into a stash of cocaine and then goes on a murderous rampage. Well, there is a new special on Discovery that is being aired as part of Shark Week that's called Cocaine Sharks. And it is not a movie script, although it does sound like one. Cocaine Sharks is a documentary that is investigating rumors of rampant recreational cocaine use by strung out sharks in the Florida Keys. These sharks are getting high on millions of pounds of nose candy that has been dumped into the waterway via the area's illicit drug trafficking trade. From... Tom Hurd, a.k.a. The Blowfish, who is the host of Cocaine Sharks, quotes, I firmly believe, and it's not just a chance of probability, that a shark will come across a floating bale of cocaine and take a bite. What's interesting is that the sharks we saw, they weren't right. They weren't just so. They seemed a little bit off. Now that was very interesting. Heard, by the way, is not some cokehead. He's actually a renowned marine biologist. He continues, One thing is for sure. We had a couple of sharks behaving strangely, and while it may not be cocaine, nothing suggests that it wasn't. Now, the special actually aired tonight for the very first time with Heard and fellow scientist Dr. Tracy Fanara Diving into the waters off the Florida coast, attracting tiger sharks, hammerheads, and lemon sharks, some of which exhibit unusually aggressive behavior. Others appear to have, quote, the spins and are slightly twisted or tweaked, kind of like a junkie shark might be if ingesting cocaine. No word on if these sharks were... Grinding their teeth. I don't know if sharks has have jaws. Perhaps an ironic inquiry considering the name of the movie from the 1970s and the subsequent sequels. But what other behaviors could these sharks be exhibiting? They're not really sniffing, I guess. They don't have a bad case of the sniffles. I don't think they have jaws. That move side to side anyhow. Obviously, they have a jaw that can open and close most of them, although hammerhead sharks may be an exception. Sharks that are filter feeders are not going to have jaws. Let's just put it that way. But the sharks that do have jaws, do those jaws start to move side to side? Are those sharks, whatever the underwater version of sweating profusely is, are those sharks doing that? Are those sharks going up to other sharks with supposedly incredible ideas that are really just coked out stupidity that the shark doesn't know any better because it's under the influence of cocaine? Does the shark have a false sense of confidence? But at the end of the night in the ocean, he has to swim back to his home or hole or wherever it is that he spends the rest of the night all alone, questioning his own sharkmanity. More from herd. We know that 
Cocaine acts as an anesthetic to some extent. So certainly if a shark got a hold of a big lump of coke, just like a human, I think the first thing that would happen is that its gills would be numbed. But we have no idea what might happen if they might become very agitated and much more unpredictable or if they get stoned, becoming lethargic and disinterested in food. No, see, that's what happens when they eat the bale of cannabis that's been dropped into the water. You're eating the bale of cocaine, you're going crazy trying to fight other sharks and other marine wildlife for logic that only you understand, the profuse sweating, the overconfidence, the stupid ideas that you think are brilliant. There are other signs that we could check here on these cocaine sharks. Now, sharks have not been tested for cocaine consumption before, but salmon have. And according to those who have tested salmon to see if they have cocaine in their systems, they get extremely hyper when exposed to coke. There have also been studies in the UK that have sampled 15 sites along London's Thames River, showing startling results via fish and drugs. Each one of these 15 sites found shrimp, and each shrimp contained cocaine. And now, apparently, that same thing can be said about the area around the Florida Keys. I guess Keys is fitting here. And in keeping with the Shark Week theme, our next Where We At story for tonight has to do with not just sharks, but you. And we do remain in America's most flaccid member for this one, where a marine biologist is suggesting that people in their decision to wear a certain type of swim trunk may be attracting sharks in the process. Marine biologist Gavin Naylor, who runs the International Shark Attack Files at the Florida Museum of Natural History, suggested that yellow is a particularly problematic color, especially when juxtaposed with particular patterns against darker colors, such as the ocean. From Naylor, it's the contrast that they can pick up on. In other words, the sharks see that contrast in color and say, hey, this is potential food here. This apparent link between bright hues and shark bites has even prompted some to dub the color yum yum yellow. So this scientist is saying that based on how sharks see things and also shark attacks that have happened in the recent past, there is a connection between those being attacked and those wearing the color yellow on their swimsuits. This is based on a series of experiments by an Australian physiologist named Nathan Hart who examined the retinal profile of different sharks to see what colors they can and can't perceive, effectively looking at things through a, pun intended, fisheye lens. The alleged correlation between bombastic colors like yellow, which is the standard color of the U.S. Navy's life preservers and shark attacks is a talking point that seems to resurface following every human encounter with a ferocious-looking fish. There's a 2021 video 
in Florida, of course, depicting a hammerhead shark circling two women who were floating in, you guessed it, an inflatable yellow raft that looked like a human crustini. That seems to support the theory. There's also a 1970s video for the Navy where prominent shark vision scientist Sam Gruber described a spine-tingling air and sea catastrophe in which the pilots had orange uniforms while the crew was wearing green khaki suits. Pilots to a man were attacked by sharks apparently because they were wearing the orange suits while the men in the green suits were left entirely alone. This is actually surprising to experts considering the aforementioned studies by Hart revealed that while sharks have a superhuman sense of smell, gets back to the cocaine thing perhaps, great white sharks can detect a drop of blood in a space the size of an Olympic swimming pool. But they may also be completely colorblind, so we're not sure what to make of this here. Maybe they're not seeing color. Maybe it is simply about the contrast that they are seeing and reacting to. Just going to tell you this once, at least one more time tonight. You're in the ocean. Keep your eyes open. Understand that going neck deep could be the end of you. Is that fear-mongering based on the movie Jaws from the 1970s? Absolutely. But it doesn't mean that it's not a valid fear. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of The Night Talker. We'll be back tomorrow at 10. In the meantime, have yourselves a great rest of the night and sweet dreams. It's the Night Talker with Trey Ellings.